What you don't hear about is the thousands and thousands of small businesses in middle America, Main Street America, that get hit, that that's not a thing for them. They're either going to pay a ransom or they're going to go out of business. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about ransomware negotiation. When a company is hit by ransomware, the notoriously disruptive malware that locks files behind a secret decryption key held onto by criminals for a price, that company has few options. As soon as ransomware hits, it spreads quickly across networks and machines, encrypting files at an alarming pace that forces a company to immediately answer pressing questions. What, if anything, can be saved? What can we do if the damage is already too deep? What if our employees are locked out of their systems? What if client information is inaccessible? What if we cannot run our business today, tomorrow, or for many, many weeks? For many victims of ransomware, the answers to those questions inform a broader debate. Should we pay the ransom? Now, there is a lot of talk about whether or not a company should pay a ransomware demand. It is believed that paying ransoms could fuel further ransomware attacks, which does not solve the bigger problem. But when you look at the numbers on how long and how harmful a ransomware attack can be, it's hard to not feel some sympathy. According to data compiled by the Ransomware Task Force in 2021, the average downtime due to a ransomware attack was 21 days, and the average time to fully recover from an attack was 287 days. The average ransom paid at the time was $310,000. And so when you look at that math, you start to see why hundreds of thousands of dollars might cost less than 21 days of downtime in which your employees can't really work, your computers can't do most of anyone any good, your customers can't get the support they need, and your databases might need to be rebuilt from the ground up. Paying a ransom is not an easy decision, and so to make that decision and process a little smoother, companies have relied increasingly on a new asset the ransomware negotiator. Ransomware negotiation is what it sounds like. It's the work of an individual or individuals to represent the needs and desires of a company that is seeking to work with its ransomware attackers. That might mean not paying the attackers at all, or maybe just not paying the attackers so much. Today, to better understand the work that goes into ransomware negotiation, how companies decide to engage a negotiator, what's a negotiator's background, and what negotiation work actually looks like. We're speaking with Curtis Minder, CEO of the cyber reconnaissance company, GroupSense. Curtis, welcome to the show. Well, hello there, thank you. Thank you for being with us. We are excited to have you here for such an interesting topic. So I wanted to just jump right into it. And I wanted to start with the actual choice of ransomware negotiation, right? Because as I mentioned above, it isn't like the de facto response to a ransomware attack. And so how and when does a company decide it wants to engage in ransomware negotiation? That is the big question, isn't it? The issue is largely a business-driven decision. With the exception of compliance, there are certain sanctions and compliance that 
would prohibit you from transacting at all. That aside, ultimately, it is a business impact and sort of a, a quantitative business decision on whether to engage what we call the threat actor uh, at all. Do you ever get asked like point blank that, you know, if you get brought in, if, you, if you're helping a client with other matters and you get brought in with this, like a ransomware attack, do they just go, hey, should I pay or not? And, and how do you respond to that? <laughs> Actually, uh, most often, that is pretty much how it's asked. Yeah, most often we get asked, well, should we pay? And, and my answer is, I don't know. And so we have to walk them through sort of a, a decision matrices uh, that helps them with that business impact. Uh, sort of assessment and decision. And help me understand like that walkthrough process. Like what what are the things that a company has to decide in, again, like you said, this business decision? Right. I mean, I think when I use the word impact, I think the obvious business impact is to everyone is sort of operational in nature, right? Which is you can't use your systems. You, you know, you may not be able to conduct business. You can't ship product or customers can't order product it gets a little bit more complex than that. And, and actually, a, a friend of mine in the industry coined this term that I've stolen called the, the ransomware blast radius, which I like <laughs> as a metaphor, because outside the obvious operational impact of ransomware, there are concentric circles of impact that people often don't think about that are meaningful to the business and or you know, have some, some monetary impact uh, associated with them. The first and, and maybe the second most obvious is if you're familiar with how these attacks often occur, the threat actors, before they lock the files, will often take a significant amount of data. Different actors use it different ways, but a lot of times it's used as a form of extortion. They will threaten to leak that data if you don't pay, or they will threaten to leak that data if you don't pay quickly, or some percentage of that data over time, et cetera. And so that has an impact on a number of things. That data may contain private information of your employees. It may contain intellectual property. It may contain business partner contracts and information. So what does that impact? That impacts customer confidence. That impacts employee morale. That impacts your ability to be competitive in the marketplace. So all of those things need to be considered. The other thing I think that is often not considered is is the employee morale component. So for example, you, you mentioned uh, when you launched the podcast that you know, you may not be able to operate your business for some number of weeks if you're not engaging quickly or recovering quickly. If that includes things like payroll and you cannot actually pay your employees for a period of time, what does that do to employee morale? And what does that do? Like, for example, if, if 7% of your staff leave because of that, what does it cost to rehire and retrain those people? It's very complex. And, and so you, you, want, you want to take all of these things into consideration as part of this. And it's a very difficult process for any company, let alone larger, more complex companies. But it is necessary as part of the, the response process. I had never even thought of something like payroll, you know, like something like, boy, I hope, <laughs> I hope they don't attack us on the 14th. You know? <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> well, and they're, and they're, they're getting smarter about those things. They are not, they're very tactical in how they're doing this or they know what they're doing. Yeah, we've seen attacks before in the past happen on, you know, three-day weekends. They love holiday when... weekends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, they they work holidays. Um, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> right. One of the things that I also mentioned at the top of the show is that there is a lot of conversation about whether or not folks should pay, right? And, and it's something that I know that multiple groups have spoken out about. I know that there's this idea that Oh, paying the ransom only helps support this criminal 
path to begin with. You know, if we if we all stopped paying ransoms, there wouldn't be ransoms anymore. And it feels like one of those things that is lacking an understanding of what a lot of businesses are going through and lacking the understanding of like what it's actually like to maybe not be able to pay your employees, you know, and lose a workforce. And so what I'm asking here, though, is are those conversations ever a part of it? Are, are there ever thoughts about, you know, companies saying, okay, well, what are the ethics of this? Is, is this right? Is this wrong? Yes. As an order of operations, you know, the first thing we check is the compliance component. Let's say we pass that, that, that the threat actors aren't on some international bad list. The next question, before we even get to the, the business impact matrices that I talked about earlier, is do you have an ethical objection to this? Does your board and leadership have an ethical objection to this? Because that's also part of the decision tree. You are right. If we pay ransoms, it does perpetuate the problem. But you're also right that a lot of people don't understand the impact this is having to a lot of businesses. In fact, the ones that we hear about on the news are typically some of the larger ones. And the larger companies, while materially impacted and and financially impacted in major ways, they continue on. They're able to survive the attack. What you don't hear about is the thousands and thousands of small businesses in middle America, Main Street America, that get hit, that that's not a thing for them. They're either going to pay a ransom or they're going to go out of business. And I've done cases on both ends of that spectrum, and I can tell you what that feels like. And and so the last thing I'll say about that is I agree, and I I have personally been active in in sort of talking to the the folks in law enforcement, but also in Congress, and and just saying, hey, look, if if we want to solve this, we have to give companies a third option, right? Right now they have two, pay a ransom, go out of business. We need to give them a third option because, you know, take one for the team is not really going to work out for the U.S. economy, right? And that's, I think that's where we're at right now. I absolutely want to get into that third option eventually, (laughs) if we have time. Um, But something I also, you mentioned earlier, right, is that you go through compliance issues. What does that mean? It differs from country to country. And and we do these, by the way, all over the world. So it's not all U.S. based. But in the U.S., the Treasury Department Office of Foreign Asset Control has a list of entities that thou shalt not do business with, right? Those are usually terrorist organizations, uh, certain countries, whole countries, and the entities within that country. So we need to do some intelligence work to determine, is the threat actor on that list or participatory in that list in some way? And so we do that on the front end. We also do that sort of mid-flight, again, and just to be more comprehensive. So when we get the wallet that the threat actor is asking us to pay. And sometimes that's upfront and sometimes that's midway and sometimes that's the very end. But when we do get it, we use some crypto blockchain tracing tools to determine to the best of our ability where that wallet was created, the digital wallet, where it's currently domiciled and what transactions has it done in recent history. And the reason why we do that is because if the wallet is in Belgium and every dollar that goes into it gets transferred to Tehran, (laughs) We might have a problem with the, with the Treasury Department after we make a payment. And so we're just being very diligent about that to make sure that we're not violating the Treasury Department's OFAC sanctions. Wow. This is kind of a maybe a complex question here, but is it your responsibility? Is it a company's responsibility to do that due diligence? Because I could see a small company saying like, look, we didn't even know how to trace a crypto wallet. We've never engaged with this type of technology before. And now, you know, you're coming, you're knocking on my door and saying, well, you know, that crypto wallet that you did pay to, sure, it was 
located in Belgium, but like you said, it every every dollar was then funneled into a different country. You know, if I'm hit with ransomware, I'm a I'm a small business owner. Is it my can I get in trouble for not knowing those things? Yes. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> it's typically fine. So no, I don't think people are going to jail over this necessarily. But yes, you can get in trouble for not knowing. Wow. So it's just a lot to me. That's a high technical bar. Yeah. But it's good to know. And it shows how important this is. I wanted to go back again to that idea of the rule, the idea that you know you shouldn't pay, this ethics of payment, that there's a hard and fast rule. Don't pay. And it's an idea put forth by some some individuals. I wanted to know, are there similar, like, quote unquote, hard and fast rules of ransomware negotiation itself? Are, are there rules of like, don't negotiate with X group or, or don't trust, a, you know, don't trust a ransomware operator on their word, like ever, like always try and get assurances. Wondering what are those rules? Do they exist? We certainly have developed over the years, sort of a playbook and framework on how we engage We've also developed some tribal knowledge on how each group operates and which ones are more risky than others and, and so on. So it, it adapts based on the scenario, but we have our own internal rules. In most cases, if you've ever seen a transcript from one of these, in most cases, these threat actors are sort of pretending to be business people. So they use words like in the nomenclature, like you're going to pay for the service we provided, which is, I know. It's funny to us right now, but it's not funny to the victims. They have a technical support component after you buy the decryptor. And when you're discussing it with them, they, they talk in sort of business terms a lot. And so one of the things that we adopted early on was like, look, if they're going to pretend to be doing a business transaction, we will pretend with them. And it tends to go better, right? We try not to be antagonistic to the best of our ability. We, we're slightly different, but not weak, right? It's a nuanced tactic, but you want to be slightly different not too weak, and speak to them on business terms. So the other thing is, you know, we, we have the saying that says, you know, negotiations end well when they start well. So we have, you know, a very specific way that we initially engage them. It's very respectful. There's a reason why you, in addition to all of the, the stuff that we've already talked about with compliance and all these other things, that you want a third party who has worked with these folks before to be in the middle of this because the victim's that I have tried to do this on their own and I've come in to play quote unquote clean up, they're emotional. The bad guys use that against you and they're good at it. And there's an art form to the actual cadence and, and how you communicate with them. I think it's so wild that, like you said, they, they take on this air of like a legitimate business because we've also seen that that approach towards the back end, like the operation of ransomware, like, you know, now there's ransomware as a service. There's, you know, like, it's people who are making ransomware and then licensing it out. I mean, just the very thought that you're going to license out ransomware, I think is insane. And this sort of feels like a top-down decision to be like, well, no, now, now you know, we, we may be engaging in criminal activity, but we're legitimate. And it's, yeah, it's just wild that it's bubbling up in every single piece of it. I wanted to also understand here that, you know, it sounds like there's, like you said at the beginning, you know, there's a lot of conversations happening. There's a lot of questions about, you know, do we do this? Does our board stand with this decision? And I wanted to know, how does the ransomware negotiation process take place? Is it 
one fellow in a room who's just left to make the decisions? Is it everyone's like in a situation room and it's just all hands on deck with like the C-suite and with like legal and maybe even like PR is there? Help me understand, you know, what is the actual process here? Sure. I mean, and then the answer to that is it's all of those things, depending on the size of the company. You know, sometimes it's Mary, <laughs> who has a small accounting firm, you know, and, and 10 employees that she's going to have to lay off. And sometimes it is the committee that you described, you know, and, and you've got internal and external counsel, sometimes law enforcement. Uh, you'll have your cyber insurance representative there, uh, leadership from the team, the CFO, the, obviously the chief information security officer, maybe the deputy CISO. In the larger companies, when you have that committee, that committee makeup and that entire process is usually driven by an incident response plan. Smaller companies don't tend to have those, so they're, they're kind of winging it. I, w- I have seen scenarios where the larger companies have also had to wing it. A quick anecdote on that is one of the questions I ask early on is, where are you in your incident response plan? There's so much to incident response, but for, for the listeners, you know, the, the technical part is, is the part that I'm interested in because it's leverage. So what I'm effectively asking is, can the bad guys still get in? Or did you guys lock the doors? Like, do you, you okay, you've, have you got that far yet? Because that's what I'm trying to figure out. And sometimes I'm talking to very large multinational companies. They probably paid one of these management consulting firms $100,000 to develop this plan. And they might've even done what they call tabletop exercises where they actually practice the plan and they've done all the right things. And I asked the question, where are you in your IR plan? And they say, well, that plan's a file. <laughs> it's on a shelf. The file's on a server and that server's encrypted. And we don't have it memorized. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, so it's little things like this that I think the ransomware is a little bit different than a normal cyber attack where I guess five years ago or 10 years ago when we were building response plans and or thinking about how to respond to cyber attacks, we were thinking about Boy, that would be annoying if somebody broke in and they they stole something and embarrassed us, and we had to notify our customers. That would be really embarrassing. And so you build a plan that keep you know that, that mitigated the embarrassment. Um, this is not that. This is they shut your company off. <laughs> it's like it's like completely operational interruption. And so you have to really think about this from a different lens, including things like you need to print those things out and keep them someplace that everybody knows. Right? It's just a fundamentally different uh, scenario. Wow. Continuing on this, like, you know, the, the people who are in the room, I'm also interested in, is it scheduled? Like, do you, do, do, I'm just trying to wrap my head around, like, contacting a ransomware operator and being like, are you free, like, at 11 a.m., like, on Tuesday? Because I just don't understand the logistics of it, because you need to get everyone together. You need them to all be there at the certain time. And it feels so normal. But then again, you're working with the most high risk situation that these people have ever likely faced for their business. Yeah, it is scheduled. Typically, it has a cadence to it, like you would have in any emergency response scenario. I will say that on the negotiator side, we basically have to take the call whenever. (laughs) So if they want to step outside, you know, they're not going to understand that we're busy uh, doing something else. Yep. And and so their, their entire business is shut down. So we have to, we always have to pick up. But generally speaking, we try to create a cadence and a schedule on, on when we talk, how often, and usually the customer does drive that. There's also a cadence on when we send messages to the threat actor, and that's highly variable as well. And it's agreed upon uh, as part of the strategy. 
Um, so everything has sort of a schedule and a cadence. And yeah, it does at some point it does seem kind of normal. Like we do have, you know, in our calendars, we'll have, okay, send message to, you know, bad guy at this time yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. How long does something like this last? You know, from from the first message that's like actually sent, you know, like, hey, we're we're doing it to whatever we would call resolution. It varies, but if I was going to give you an average, a couple weeks is probably Whoa, okay. is probably normal. It depends, right? Because it depends on what's more important, the amount of capital you're deploying to solve this or how quickly you need your stuff back. And so it's, it's that's part of that business impact thing to say like, look, for example, I mentioned the cadence when we talk to the threat actors, you know, in any negotiation strategy, delay is an effective tactic. <laughs> but you may not be able to afford that delay. And that's something we need to talk about, right? And and so that's it's all part of the equation. You know, we've done them as quick as, as a business day and that, that doesn't necessarily include the actual crypto payment, but the, the you know, the settlement. And some of them have taken a month, uh, but, you know, usually around a couple of weeks, uh, you know, 10 business days, let's say. That's longer than I imagined. It's just for such a, like a high pressure situation. That sounds devastating. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, there's complexities on the finance side too, that, that play into that. Right. So, and we, we help the clients with that. So in parallel, while we're doing the business impact, et cetera, we have a finance team talking to the customer finance team and we're trying to identify things like what kind of policies does your bank have for transferring large amounts of fiat capital to a crypto brokerage? Because if they have hard and fast rules about that, it's not against the law, but they might, we've found banks who have very strict rules about the amount of capital you can transfer at any given time. So we've kind of come up with our our business impact settlement number. We have a rough order of magnitude of this thing. We might find that we have to do multiple transfers over multiple days. And then that plays into the, the length of this thing. And the bigger the company, the bigger the amount, and the more complex the banking situation is and, and that sort of thing. Wow. Yeah. There's just so many rules that you have to like be aware of. Yeah. We've talked, you know, a lot about what, you know, a company what what they want from a situation like this, the people who are involved, but the individual, the liaison, the ransomware negotiator, who are they? You know, what is their background? Where are they typically from in terms of like career expertise? Who is the ransomware negotiator? You know, it's it's certainly a burgeoning sort of specialization in, in the industry that has picked up steam in the last, you know, year, let's say. When we first started doing it, there weren't very many of us. My background is in cyber reconnaissance, cyber intelligence. But before that, I was in security enterprise sales. I guess that qualifies me to do some negotiation. But I think (laughs) this is just such a different form of negotiation that it does require... First of all, I will say, it's not easy to teach this. We we built a team, so it's not just me doing this now. And and so it takes a certain kind of human... (laughs) to be able to do this well. And, and part of that is empathy. Just certain people have certain levels of empathy. They can read other people or put themselves specific. By the way, empathy is not sympathy. <laughs> just want to be clear about that. Um, you know, we're, we're, we don't, we're not sympathizing with the bad guys, but, I, but yeah. we can very clearly, being threat intelligence folks and, 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 and talking to bad guys in our day job all the time, we can kind of understand who these people are, how they operate, what motivates them. And we can pretty much put ourselves in their shoes. And I think that gave us kind of a leg up when we first started. And then we later made it more framework oriented, collaborated with some of the top negotiators in the world who've written some of the, the books in, on the topic. And, and so we made it more academic uh, sort of after the fact. Nowadays, it's more and more common that, 
the the cyber breach law firm that's involved. If you if you hired a breach coach, for example, from a cyber breach law firm, they may do that. Law enforcement, so former law enforcement tend to be. There's a, a few firms who have hired former FBI agents, things like that, who have been formally trained in negotiation to do the negotiations. And we have recently launched a training program so that we can train other negotiators to do this better. What we found was like, first of all, you know, this is not our core business. We, this is not the main reason our company exists, but we have gotten quite well known for it. And what was happening over the last year is we were being pulled into cases where someone who wasn't as practiced in this had started the negotiation. It had taken a left turn and they wanted us to reverse it. And by the way, that is very hard to do because the bad guy does not care <laughs> that we switched pictures, right? They don't care. Um, and so that's hard to do. And so we, we, we decided, Hey, you know, if this is what's going to happen, every, you know, people are just going to start trying to do this on their own inside their own firms. We should at least help them. And so we, we started, you know, cause we we're care, we care about the outcomes ultimately for everyone and, and for the economy and so we we built a little training program around it. So it's it's a mixed bag of people who are doing it. That's so fascinating to also learn that it's a bevy of things, right? Um, and there's a aspect to it which was, you know, there's people who can be empathetic, and like you said, that's not sympathetic. There's people who have negotiation tactics, uh, who have this kind of experience, but also, like you said, there's a sort of academic angle to it, and I think that's going to probably play a role in in my next question here, which is what does the ransomware negotiator do? Like, what is the work of negotiation? And I ask that really, I'm, I'm quite interested also because I read an interview recently in the register where someone compared it to, it's pretty much like buying a car. And immediately I was like, it can't be like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about ransomware negotiation, but I do know about buying a car and I feel like they're not, one's not gonna help me from the other. And so what is the work? It's funny you use that particular example because I, I make that joke a lot is that, you know, my superpowers only work on the ransomware operators. I paid too much for my truck. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's that's unfortunate because it is it is not like uh, negotiating to buy a car. Now, there, there's obviously some basic fundamentals of negotiation that apply across almost every spectrum, but this is very nuanced. I want to answer your question first, where you said, what does the negotiator do? And that depends on the firm, right? So, so there are firms that do this where the negotiator, all they do is interact with a threat actor to try to reduce the amount that is paid, et cetera. I think I spelled out for you that we do a lot more than that. There's a business impact. There's a compliance. There's a cryptocurrency and finance component. There's, there's a lot of those things involved. And there's, the, frankly, a cyber intelligence component involved as well. But it, it's, it's, it's all those things. And then also down to somebody who's only job is to to sit and interact with the threat actor and try to reduce the monetary impact. I think where this is nuanced and different, and, and part of the reason why some of the academics reached out to us was that, let's say you go read one of the famous negotiation books. Let's say you go read like mm-hmm. Getting to Yes or something like that. It's a mm-hmm. very famous book. Mm-hmm. A lot of the tactics and tools that they use are semi-applicable, but there's some nuanced things that that they assume that are happening in a negotiation that aren't true here. So one is they may assume that you can speak to the person, hear the tone of their voice, see them, body language, eye contact. None of those things are true. It's done over a dark web chat. It may assume that there's some symmetry and leverage. Pretty much not true because the bad guy has no accountability. Uh, they have all of your data and, and they're good at taking the important stuff. They take copies of your finances. I can't 
lie to them about how much money you have when they have your QuickBooks, right? So, you know, that, that's a lot of leverage, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and uh, the other thing is, there's this very nuanced language thing that I think is really important. It scares me that people think it's just like negotiating for a car. Um, so basically, the first person you talk to in these groups, so just some background for the listeners, that these groups are organized. They're, they run a lot like a business. And the first person that you interact with when you go on the, the dark web chat with the bad guy probably doesn't speak English at all, depending on the group, mm-hmm. which means whatever you see in the window that they put in there, they, they pasted from a script, right? So now here's, here's the nuanced thing. Whatever you type back, what do you think they do? Well, they put it in Google Translate. <sighs> So do you understand the tone and context of what you just said in their native language? Because this is the first message you're sending and it sets the tone for the rest of the negotiation. They end well when they start well, like I said, this is a very important moment. And if you don't understand that, you could set this in the wrong trajectory very quickly. And there's just a bunch of little things like that that are very nuanced about this craft in some of it, like I said, it's very hard to teach this. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it's an art form. It's very different. Yeah. Like you said, you can't teach that stuff. It feels like stuff that that you learn because you got it wrong once. And you're like, well, we'll never do that again. Some of the other things that you mentioned here, some of the tactics that are involved, uh, one of the things that you said, delaying is powerful. It's useful. Help me understand that. How, how does one implement or use delays in the in a negotiation? Yeah. I mean, it, it depends on the group, but like I said, most of these groups are pretty organized. It's actually kind of interesting to think of it this way, and I don't mean to trivialize what they're doing. They're, they're not good people, but think of the different ransomware actor groups as businesses with a go-to-market business plan, right? And so some of them are in the news, you might've heard of them called big game hunters. Like they, they just hunt out the big companies in order to do that, they're spending a significant amount of resources to get into these companies and then get penetrated far enough in the network that they can do the damage that they need to do. It takes time. They're investing. Other groups, like let's call them a, a, a small to medium business play, and they're more volume, high volume, low calories from their, their investment perspective, low hanging fruit, right? And so depending on where you are in that spectrum, delay is, is very useful. So for example, take one of the groups like Phobos or a Phobos affiliate. So Phobos, they might have 150 victims at a time or something like that. I don't know exactly, but they, they have many victims. And this, by the way, is something that we have to explain to the victim too, is say, hey, look, I know that you really care about this, but there's 100 more victims that they're talking to and they may not be very responsive, right? But what you want to do with, with Phobos or a group like that is you kind of just want to put yourself in that like, high maintenance, low value quadrant, if you will, and say, we're going to pay you something. You sort of indicate that as often as possible. Um, but then delay, 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 response, delay. And they'll, eventually they may, they may say, and this does work, they may go, you know what, let's just take the money we can get and let this one go, right? Wow. We've got uh, 99 other ones that, you know, we can get more money out of. And, and so, <laughs> that, I mean, that's a very simplistic example, um, but that kind of tactic does work. I like to use that quadrant, like the, the, the high maintenance, low value, <laughs> <laughs> but they know they're going to get paid something. So they, let's just take the money, you know, opportunity cost kind of thing reduced. Let's take the money off the table now. And uh, that does seem to work. Wow. Is the goal of every 
conversation to pay less? Is it that simple? No, I'm glad you asked that. That's a really informed question. Sometimes we engage the threat actor simply to delay any other negative impact. So that could be the release of data or something like that. So we may make the decision, hey, I don't think we're going to pay. We're, we're actually going to restore. But we don't know how successful that rest- restoration is going to be, and it's going to take a week. What we don't want them to do is between now and Friday, leak some of our data to get us to talk to them, because they might. So let's talk to them <laughs> um, while we figure out how long it's going to take us to restore. Um, do you see what I'm saying? So there's, there, yeah, there's like yeah. t- tactics like that. Uh, those are risky for any number of reasons, but, they, but yeah. we do often uh, do that. Yeah, it sounds like it's just damage mitigation at that point. Yep, yep. Wow. One thing that I also wanted to understand is, so actually two things here. Um, one, you said uh, that, you know, the first person you talk to, you know, they might not know English. Um, but that kind of triggered something for me to ask, which is like, are there second and third and fourth people you talk to? Or are there like, can you say, can you do the equivalent of like, I'd like to speak to your supervisor? Are there more than one individual? Yes. In most groups, there's a hierarchy. And I don't know if you, you followed the release of some of the Conti chat files, but Conti is one of the major groups. They had some dissent within their ranks. They dumped a bunch of their internal chat logs and it pretty much validated what we knew about the groups. They have a management team. They have quotas. They have commission. They have, it's, it's like a business. And think of the, the original people you might talk to as sort of the junior slash inside salespeople. And then when you get above a certain amount of discount, they're, they're only allowed to discount, let's say, from the original number of 20%. If they hit that ceiling, they may engage the next level of management who has uh, approval to discount an additional 10 and so on. And so like, it, it depends on which group you're talking about, but they, they have discount frameworks like that. They use their managers as a foil often. Mm. You know the concept of a foil in, in negotiation, but they'll say, I can't, I have to get approval from my manager. And then they'll come back and, and represent the manager as like, he said no. And so you'll say, well, I need to speak with him. Yeah. So it's very much like you said, you're like, yes, I would like to talk to the manager, please. It's fascinating. Wow. The other thing I was interested in is um, whether or not the ransomware negotiator, ransomware negotiators, do they have to protect their identity in any way? Like, is there any interest in who these folks are from the groups? Like, are they trying to, I don't know if it's, you know, I don't know if it's they're trying to harm them, but I wonder if information about these folks is valuable. And so, yeah, is there any, do they have to protect who they are? So it's actually a timely question because we just talked about foils. When we, when we first started doing this, we represented ourselves as a third party representing the victim. Because then we could use the victim as a foil. So we could say, oh, I hear what you're saying, man, but you know, my client's really not going to be able to do that. I'll go ask them for you. you know. And there, there's a, that's a sort of an art form in, in negotiation, how you use that tool. And then a few months in, a few of the groups had publicly put on their blogs, and they do have blogs, uh, that if they found out that the victim was using a third party to help them negotiate, that they would delete the decryptor key and dump the data. And so we quickly pivoted to, we do not identify ourselves as a third party. We don't identify ourselves at all, frankly, if we can avoid it. And for the most part, we're trying to perpetrate as if we are the victim. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. But yes, um, I'm sure that they probably wouldn't like us very much (laughs) if they knew who we were. Yeah. Yeah. 
we've talked a lot about you know the, the negotiation tactics about that there are different outcomes right um i wanted to ask here just do you have some examples of success stories that you've seen in your work it depends what you mean by success in any case where we're paying a foreign actor to get back what is rightfully ours it, I, it's hard to say that that's success but <laughs> but yes we we've reduced the amount significantly in a lot of cases for a lot of companies and saved people's actual businesses and i i think those are the, I would consider those a success. You know, some of the better cases that that are meaningful, like they feel really good, is you know we've 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 helped cancer charities that got hit, right? And the bad guys are asking for millions of dollars from a cancer charity. We would get that down to five thousand dollars or something. And it's for millions, right? And so the, those things I think are are good examples of a successful outcome for everybody. Yeah, I'd say that's. I mean, I'd say that's a huge success. It, you hear about these groups saying that they won't target hospitals. You hear about other groups saying that that's the only folks they target and vital life-saving, you know, services. You can't. Yeah, I know. They shouldn't have, to, shouldn't have to be bothered with something like this. You know, yep. um, I wanted to wrap up here with something that you mentioned earlier that I said we would get back to because I'm particularly interested in this, which is what is the third option for businesses? Um, you know, it's, it can't be, you don't pay the ransom or you go out of business. And I'm particularly interested because honestly, I think we've been trying to answer this question a lot on the podcast here where we're just trying to find solutions to things. And from everything I've known about and reported on on ransomware in the past like year and a half, you know, last year we had what we called like the summer of ransomware, um, Colonial Pipeline getting hit, a bunch of companies. It just felt like there just wasn't a solution here. And one of the things I wanted to, you know, like I said, I wanted to go back to there is what do you think would be a good third option for companies? Well, before I answer that, if you if you don't, if you'll indulge me, I think when I think about the the ways that this goes away, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I really four things come to mind. One is technology, right? So that we, we and I think some of that you know there are technology uh, solutions out there that are able to detect and mitigate some of this. But to your point, it's not really solved yet, and a lot of the technology that can do that isn't accessible to the bulk of the market, right? They just can't afford or operate those tools. They're small businesses, et cetera. So there's a challenge. The other thing would be negative consequences for the bad guys. (laughs) And the negative consequence could be you don't get paid, but it could also be you go to jail. Unfortunately, you know, that seems like a tall order considering that most of them are offered this sort of unofficial amnesty from their home country. And although that's a good one, my favorite, uh, you know, is prevention, it, it, it may be a, a misnomer or a misunderstanding that these a lot of these attacks are not sophisticated and they are preventable. And so there's like a sort of a cyber hygiene sort of PSA campaign that could be waged <laughs> to help a lot of these folks just make some simple changes, you know, to their, to their technology stack. And by the way, a lot of these preventative items don't cost anything or cost very little. And then the last one would be policy. Uh, and and that's, that's what you're asking about the, the third option. And the, my answer is, I know this is probably frustrating, but my answer is I don't really know. But when lawmakers talk about making, you know, ransom payments illegal, you know, I, I just go back to well, what, what are you trying to do? Because if you're, if you're trying to make it so that people don't pay ransoms, making it illegal isn't necessarily going to do that, right? <laughs> 
it's just going to make them hide the fact that they paid ransoms, which by the way, this whole thing is done over dark web and cryptocurrency, which are anonymous and anonymous, right? So it's like, I think it makes the problem harder to solve if we take the light off of it. And, and right now, at least we have the opportunity to talk about it openly, to have law enforcement involved, even though law enforcement's official stances don't pay, it's not illegal. So they're not going to stop you and they will take inventory of the attack, et cetera. And so just going back to the policy element, we brainstorm all kinds of ideas, anything from like a subsidized recovery program, et cetera. But I think it, if you're going to take the stick approach, you need to have something else there to sustain the company. And it has to be, you know, if something does get enacted based on the conversations I've had, it will be a combination of a prevention program and some recovery program. And if the government took a look at the amount of money that is leaving the country, not just money, but data, like critical data, is leaving the country on a daily basis as a result of these attacks, there is a return on investment for a program like that. <laughs> like a very clear, like quantitative return on investment. And so I, you know, I'm just hoping, I'm, you know, the government is slow. So we, we're just working on it. And the one thing I would leave the listeners with is, God forbid this should happen to you, but being transparent about it is, is important. And it's less, it used to be very shameful. I think it's so, it's becoming so common, unfortunately, that it's less shameful. Like it's going to happen. Uh, it's, you're going to know people that this has happened to, especially when you're talking about small businesses, it's not their fault, right? It's not their fault. Technology is very complex. I have an iPhone. I've been in technology for 20 years. I have no idea how it works, right? So, you know, having small businesses who have to use technology just to remain competitive in the marketplace, having them, you know, expecting them to understand and mitigate the risk associated with every piece of technology that they're using is just completely unreasonable, right? And so, um, I, it's not their fault, it, but transparency, I think, is the key to, to moving this forward. Yeah, I very much agree. When we were thinking about, you know, the, the policy uh, angle, I think it would be fascinating. I think it would be great if companies were encouraged to report things because they could then gain access to recovery support. You know, right. that would be great. Curtis, I wanted to thank you again for coming on today's show and telling us so much about uh, something I knew very little about and also for dispelling the notion that this is just like buying a car. <laughs> right on. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, man. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we bring a teenager onto the show to discuss the difficulties of being online today. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at malwarebytes.com blog. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin MacLeod from Incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from Unminus.com. Today's show was edited by Eric Johnson from LightningPod.fm. Thank you, folks. <laughs>